Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. What's on the show today? Let's just get right to that. Let's talk about the show. Let's get into it. Um, you know, you've probably noticed that we are on a tear of uh, phone-a-friends because we love calling our friends right now. Um, <laughs> Listen, this is what life is all about in general, but also on this show. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, someone else, tell me how you are spiraling in your own apartment. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, today I called uh, Jenny Han, aka, um, you know, like number one New York Times bestselling author of To All the Boys I've Loved Before, the series. She's also an executive producer for all three of the Netflix films. And she's the author of the other New York Times bestselling series. Her books have been published in every language you have ever heard. Jenny is a former librarian. She got her MFA in creative writing at the new school. She lives in Brooklyn. She really is just a fabulous, 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 and very hardworking and really generous human being. So here's Jenny. Hi, Jenny Han. Thanks for being on Call Your Girlfriend. Hi, thank you for having me. This is really fun for me because we haven't done phone a friends in so long and uh, I like miss calling my friends. So hi, hi. <laughs> hi, I'm very honored to be your friend. You are really busy, Jenny Han. Um, first, tell me about your pandemic. Like, are you, um, you know, like, are you okay is the bad question, but, um, you know, are you in one piece? I mean, yes, thanks to you. Um I have felt like, I don't know. I mean, it's been a long year, but I, I do think there's been like good fruits that have come out of it. Like um, you and I walk in the park, which has been really good for my soul. Um, and I've been, really, <laughs> I've been really busy with work stuff. Um, so I think I hope that when it's over, I'll come out of it and have some stuff to show for it, I guess. Oh, man, you used this analogy the other day, like the image the other day when we were walking about, um, you know, like being like butterflies and cocoons. Yeah. <laughs> when, the world, when the world comes back to normal, it's like, okay, chrysalis or whatever that process is called is over. I was about to do it again. And then I was like, does that sound so cheesy? I, sorry, I'm laughing at my butterfly analogy. Um, sorry. So it's, I know it's, it's cheesy, but no. I'm laughing because it like it was the first thing that made me happy, you know, because I was like, you know what, like this time is just weird and complicated. And obviously we are anxious and we're scared and terrified half of the time. But every once in a while, like we just sit down and do work. And I was like, OK, one day someone will see this work. <laughs> exactly. It's a uh, wild. What else has been bringing you some like a uh, like a small sense of like peace in the quarantine? I have spent a lot of time um, with my little nephews. I was at my sister's house for most of this quarantine uh, in DC. And it was a whole different rhythm for me because, you know, I'm used to being alone. And I just had these like two little gremlins who were always by my side 
waking me up in the morning or wanting attention during the day when I was trying to work. And I feel really lucky that I got to have that time because, you know, they're only little for that short period of time and, and then it's over. And I never would have had that time um, if this had not happened. Yeah, it's so funny hearing you say that because I remember at the beginning of quarantine, you know, all the memes that were like, hmm, like the people without children are having a good time. And and uh, <laughs> you and I got to be people without children who spent our quarantine with a lot of children, actually. So yeah. I, was like, hmm. I was like, I don't know about this community model, you guys. I really agree with you about just like having kids around. Is there anything that you feel about very young people like children that has been like good for your work like I know we all complain all the time about how it's like actually a time suck but have you found like some creativity or something that has given you like some you know like a new spark that you didn't have because you're not like surrounded by kids oh well I mean I, I'll say that when I was with them I was valuing my time more you know I didn't watch tv because I was busy all the time and then when I did have free time, I was working. Um, and now that I'm back in my regular life, like I was trying to prepare for this by like watching some TV that I had been meaning to watch. And then, you know what I did? I ended up watching the challenge on MTV until ah! four, <laughs> until four thirty in the morning last night, even though my plan had been, Oh, I'm going to watch Bridgerton. I'm going to watch a promising young women. So I could have like, interesting things to say. And then I literally stayed up until 4.30 in the morning watching the challenge. Sonny, you know, I don't like it when you stay up that late, but I also, know. tell me about the challenge. I am saving, I'm saving it to rewatch when I'm having like a low pandemic moment because I used to be obsessed with that like genre of MTV programming. Oh my God. I mean, it maybe is like the trashiest thing about me, but the challenge is like my favorite show. And I missed a whole season because I was gone. And so I was re I was watching that. And then there's a new one on right now. But basically, it's like old real world road rules. And now, you know, because of reality TV, they've got like some big brother folks and um, like other, uh, other reality show stars on the show. And they just wow. compete against each other. But what's interesting about it is it's people from, you know, like CT is sort of the star of the show. And he's been on since like... I want to say like 2002 or something like that. Whenever the show started, I'm a, I'm a CT head. Don't even worry. about. It. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so relieved that you know what the challenge is. I think it's a small group of people that I know who actually know what the challenge is. Most people watch it's just it. Epic era of reality television, you know, where it was that like beginning time of MTV was like moving away from doing real world and they were introducing, like, basically, they were introducing the people from every season or every one of their reality shows together. And it, I don't know, it's like, at the time, I remember thinking, like, wow, how do these people even learn how to be together? And I appreciated that I wasn't just sitting in the house, you know, because the drama of sitting in a house is very different than the drama of, like, let's try to win this competition. And if you know anything about me, it's that my secret favorite TV show is The Amazing Race. And anytime I meet a new person, like whether they're a friend or whatever, I always think I'm like, are we going to be a good, amazing race team? Oh my gosh. That's like me when I'm on the subway. Do you ever have a thought of like looking around your subway car and think like, that's the person I would like team up with if things got really crazy down here. 
You know what I mean? Like all the time, literally all the time. I always like step in and I'm like, who is the most prepared person in this? <laughs> I also have the thought of like, who would I hook up with if it, it was like, you know, if we actually absolutely had to hook up with somebody on this train, I had that thought as well. But, but normally it's the thought of like a zombie apocalypse or, um, you know, some sort of, um, hostage situation or you go on the run like who who's your like teammate so I guess it's sort of Amazing Race-esque I um I first of all I love that you're like who would I hook up with you were like in Snowpiercer and you're like who must I hook up with here and like, that is not how you win the game <laughs> Oh um i love it because it just like makes you observe people but i do that all like i do that all the time and it um it it's funny i like i can't believe i'm saying it out loud uh, <laughs> um what other, what other tv shows are you watching okay so i am watching bridgerton um which is exactly my kind of like candy delicious you know period drama but sexy is is um right up my alley but i've only just begun did you read the books i think i might have read the books like a long long time ago um so it's it's all new to me but you know with with romance there's a sort of preordained uh happy ending anyways but it's still uh, it's fun to to watch I um it i watched two minutes of it and it was too sexy for me so i think like I, it was too much. It's because I, I like I have a hard time with romance. I am obviously going to watch Bridgerton at some point, but the day that I turned it on, I was not in the right mind frame for it. I will say that in my defense, and I was very distracted, so like I wasn't paying attention. And obviously, you know, I'm like, it's like Gossip Girl. You kind of have to pay attention to the setup. And and next thing I knew, I turn around at the screen, you know, and there's like a violin version of a pop song, and people are like having like really intense sexual intercourse. And I was like, I cannot handle this right now. <laughs> this is too this is too much for me, and maybe I'll come back to it. But I think I'm I've always been that way about romance. It's funny. It's like one of the things that makes me like, I'm like, am I a prude or am I just not in the mood? <laughs> so wait, you don't like to watch romance when there's sex involved? Do you prefer like a more chaste kind of romance? Okay. Let's be, let's be fair here. The sex of the Shonda Rhyme shows are out of control. So <laughs> let's put it that way. No, I think it's like the too much, um, like part of what always has made me uncomfortable about romance is obviously like my own stuff, right? Where I was like, this is too earnest. It's too earnest. They're saying all the quiet things out loud and I can't handle it. <laughs> and, and so even when, you know, it's like my roommates in college, like loved Pride and Prejudice and I would watch it and then I would feel myself blush. And I was like, what is wrong? with me like I cannot handle the earnestness of too many like love stories I just want to watch action movies wait which version though the Keira Knightley one or the Jennifer Ely one I've seen all of them um I love the Keira Knightley one only because they like speed it up so much you know they're like okay mm -hmm. uh we're just gonna the travel scenes like happen really fast but um I listen I like both of them I would not say that I love both of them I've just like learned a lot about how much like some of that stuff it's just like too earnest for me but that's my own damage i'm working on it i rented um the pride and prejudice miniseries at the like video store in my college town and it was like vhs i think it was that i was watching it by and i remember watching it like late at night and my roommates were sleeping 
and I felt like these like swoons. Like, you know, when you feel like a swell of emotion, like rise over you, like I kept feeling those swoons. And I think it's the only time I've ever felt that when I was watching um, TV or a movie. Like I felt it when I read a romance novel, but just these like swells, like an ocean swell over you. Of, of oh man <laughs> <laughs> i guess like i feel the swell too but what i'm saying is that like it makes me scared i'm like oh, i'm gonna drown i gotta run <laughs> <laughs> i'm like let me let me like throw my body into the abyss and, and let it wash over me so so like i i have bewitched you body and soul yeah. that does it for you <laughs> no actually because that was a line they put in for I, I believe that line is not is not um, original to the book. They something they put in for the Kira Knightley version. You are blowing my mind right now. Also, I hate Mr. Darcy. Like I think no. Mr. Darcy is toxic, and no. uh, I don't like it at all. And that's my deep truth. And if you must cancel me, cancel me. But that's that's the real problem of like those movies for me is I was like, these matches are bad and there's a lot of toxicity here and I'm not here for it. <laughs> well, um, I'll leave it at that. Um, I'll, let, I'll, let, I'll let the internet cancel you for that. Canceled. Please don't cancel me. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. This is why we're. This is why I'm in therapy, so I can watch, um, you know, like Mr. Darcy and Mr. Bingley, and not lose my my mind. Um, okay, so you're watching Bridgerton. What else are you watching? Uh, Southern Charm. Oh uh, my God. Another. <laughs> I know my taste sounds so lazy potato chip right now, um, but <laughs> it's hard. It's so hard to find focus these days and it's almost like it's just easy to put that on and then I can kind of relax and play like Tetris on my computer as that plays in the background almost and you know I think the last thing I watched and I tend to like gobble it all up in one sitting so I watched the Queen's Gambit but in one night you know that's that's my mo usually all at once I, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I love that you were like Lay's potato chips. You know me. I, I don't believe in like uh, guilty pleasures. Me I either, also- me either. But I was genuinely trying to prepare to have a good conversation with you. Um, and so like last night I start, I was reading, like very quickly reading Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. Oh, that's <laughs> good. Coming. It was so good. It's so good. But I'm like, I gotta, I gotta be a reader. And um this I I started out really strong in pandemic reading a lot of books and then I just like tapered so the most I can do is like my cook's illustrated magazine or um now I I I did start reading minor feelings just so I could sound a little bit more um scholarly than cook's illustrated you are so ridiculous. I, I don't know. I really reject that. Obviously, like, love minor feelings. And, like, um, that, that book is amazing and everyone should read it. But I, like, don't you feel that, first of all, in the pandemic, every one of your habits is weird? Like, I, um, I, I've gone through phases of reading where sometimes it's all I want to do is read because I cannot look at a screen. And then there are other times where when I look at the book, I, I can't even make any sense of the words because whatever part of my brain that I used to read is the same part that gets anxious. Mm. So I feel that like this year is just not representative. It's like every bit of entertainment is actually like about self-soothing somehow. That sounds right. Although I can't even just blame it on 2020 because I think for a while now, it's almost like my brain has been sort of reprogrammed 
to be like, oh, I should check and see if I have an email or, you know, like a tweet or something that's been responded to poorly and I'm now canceled on Twitter and I got to like quickly go check. Hmm. Um, like that kind of like anxiousness that makes it very hard for me to like sink in to the book. Oh, the like being on demand all the time. Is that, um, what are your like kind of coping mechanisms for that? Because I am sure that you are someone who gets like more email than the general population. You also get more like, you know, because of your work, you have a lot of fans and a lot of people that want to interact. Like, do you have, do you have a way that you handle all of it? Or do you just like look at, look at all of it and respond to all of it? It's funny that you should ask that because I literally this morning, I remembered my personal strategy for that. And I had forgotten. And now as I'm getting a lot of requests um, for like press and stuff for the final to all the boys movie, I could feel myself starting to get stressed out again. And then I remembered the little like strategy I came up with um, on the first movie, which is, you know, when I get asked to do something, I ask myself three questions, which are, is it fun? Is it easy? And is it really worth it? And I think mm. usually it's a yes on one of those, but it's rare to have two of those and even rarer for the three. And so I try to only say yes to things that are the two because it kind of like, I don't know, it cuts down a lot of the like dross, I guess, to just boil it down to those three questions. And I don't have to sit there agonizing over, but should I say yes, because I feel bad because, you know, it's a favor or sort of questions kind of magically disappear once I can, can just narrow it down to the three questions. I love that. Anna and I talked about that at, um, for our new year's episode about having like a decision matrix for yourself Mm-hmm. Um, and mine is like very similar where I have a set of questions that I ask myself, but you are, you are very kind to do two out of three. I'm like, I try to really, <laughs> really hit for the three out of three, even though it's not possible all the time. And another thing I think I think about a lot is how the request comes in, because I do think that how people ask you for either work or favor or, you know, like however it is, the way that they ask you is also very representative of how the experience will go, you know? Yes. Where yes. I was like, oh, if it's a really scatterbrained, like, kind of request that's urgent, I was like, mm, you're probably not respecting my time, and uh, that's how this is going to go. Or, you know, and I try to be mindful also, but the tension is there, and you are someone who is, like, very public-facing, so I'm sure that it's a lot how do you decide how you just like take time for like yourself to just like recharge your own batteries or are you super extroverted and you can be out there all the time? I mean, I think it's my challenge time, you know, like (laughs) when I'm laying on the couch, um, kind of just watching the challenge and able to like lose Mm -hmm. myself in a drama of, of that episode. It's my time to sort of unwind. And I guess, I mean, I'm technically an extrovert, so I think I do enjoy being out there, but then I definitely, um, also like the Energizer Bunny where I need to recharge for like 20 minutes before I can get back up again. And you are, you are go, go, go. Well, let's talk about the third to all the boys because I have been waiting for this for exactly one year. Exactly mm. one year. It's finally here. I wish Netflix had given it to me when I asked for it a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. I am really excited, Jenny. Are you excited? 
yeah, I'm excited. I mean, it's bittersweet. Like I keep posting all these um, TikToks of, you know, how much they've grown and how little they were once and how they're like adults now. And that, that is like, is sad and um, also kind of lovely for me to just kind of watch that transformation. But it's always sad to say goodbye. This though, I don't know, we worked on movies two and three back to back. Um, So it, it feels like it's been forever since we finished it. Oh man, that's such a very strange feeling. I think that you like, obviously if anyone who writes books like kind of gets that of you work on something and then like later, later it's out in the world. But I feel like this is even more intense because it's finally out and it does feel like the closing of like that curtain at least. Yeah. And gosh, I mean, I wrote that first book, um, well, it was published in 2014, but I had the idea for it in 2010. So it's literally been, you know, more than a decade of, wow. of this, of this story. Um, but I, I have loved living in Lara Jean's world and um, spending time with all these characters. And what's more, I have loved being able to connect with um, fans over the books and the movies. Um, I felt really emotional when I was, when the trailer went up and, people were posting all their reactions and saying how, you know, I was in middle school when the first book came out and now I'm graduating mm-hmm. college. Um, now I have my first job. And that made me tear up um, just to think like what an honor it is to be on these people's like journey and um, like their own coming of age. Oh, Jenny, I'm getting so like emotional. I, you know, like one of the best things about the books and the movies and your writing in general is that you're like, your imagination, first of all, is iconic. Like I cannot, I don't know how to write anything that is not um, like based on research. So <laughs> I was like, I'm going to enter your brain and be like, what is it like to have an imagination? But you know, it's like whenever I, like in reading your books and in watching, um, the in watching the movies you are so good at just like finding these really just like tender moments like the christmas cookie bonanza just these like these things that just like i feel the atmosphere of how like sweet this is and oh, i thank you and I know that you've like talked before about how you don't, um, you know, you don't have like strict outlines for your books. And so I wonder if, you know, like how much like you're planning it or how much it's like, it just really tumbles out of you. I plan it not at all. And I think I sometimes just try to make myself feel that cozy feeling um, as I'm writing it. So I'm, as I hope that readers feel really cozy and kind of warm as they're reading it, you know, um, I don't outline and I don't write in order and I kind of just go with the flow and I think of it like um, surfing, even though I don't surf, but I just get out there and, and, you know, wait for the big waves. And then I just kind of ride the whole, the wave to shore um, Mm -hmm. for as far as it'll take me. And so I think now that I'm doing some screenwriting though, it's, it's a really different experience and I'm having to outline but it's, it's like almost like a different brain that I'm using. I love that. I also love, you know, that like at its core, some of the story of the books is really about the loss of a parent, mm-hmm. you know, and while it doesn't like focus on that grief all the time, it's not like a, a grief driven story. 
it is like ever present in like the entire subtext of the book. And even in the movies, you feel it so much. And I wonder like what your decision was around like writing about that situation in general. I think that, wow, this is like really getting into it. But like, I think (laughs) weirdly, I mean, as a kid, I've always um, had that fear about losing my mom or like, um, Mm -hmm. you know, like thinking about when she was going to die. And like, it's something I just want to write about and and think about what if I didn't have my mom. Also, I think, you know, I didn't realize it until after I had written the book and I was on tour for the book and I was talking about it, which, which was that what I was actually writing about was families changing and how you can't stop that change from happening, but it doesn't always have to be a bad change. And at the time, my sister was getting married and we were planning her wedding. And I think I was just feeling so many different emotions about it and feeling like some sense of loss in that our family was now irrevocably changed. And it wasn't going to be the two of us and my parents anymore. And it wasn't going to be, she and I would always like um, sleep in the same bed on like Christmas Eve. And I think I felt like some sadness about it. And so as to all the boys begins, Laura Jean is like grappling with the fact that her older sister is going away to college and she feels kind of unmoored by that. And what happened for me was having my brother-in-law, who I really love, and then now my nephews, you get to really see that change does not have to be a bad thing. And there can be such amazing things that come from that. And I guess also, if there's anything I wanted my like young readers to take from it is that like a changing family is something that happens like your whole life, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people die, people get divorced, new life comes in. And it's something that you just have to brace yourself for, for your entire life. And that it's hard. And I don't think it gets easier. But I also think, uh, as you get older, you can really see the ways that that change um, can bring such like joy into your life. Listen, I'm in my mid thirties and I'm like barely learning that lesson. So (laughs) 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 young readers. Genuinely, Jenny, like I was so struck by like it's when the first movie came out, the conversations that it just like forced me to have with other people my age. You know, it's like we're not teens, like reading these books or watching them. And the level of enjoyment was just so, you know, I think that it really cut across like all ages. Obviously, some of that was like um, you know, like inappropriate, like thirsting for um a young <laughs> I am not part of that group because I am an appropriate thirster. But, um, you know, I just, I, I love that experience of that. We can go in being like, hmm, like a Peter is kind of cute. And then you're like, oh, wow. Like I am here like crying about my mom that's dead. And we're like talking about all of <laughs> But I think that some of that also is because you wrote, you know, like a, a family that was not like all white. Like there was something about it. I think that just like hit so differently because, we are so used to being told these stories, you know, like we hear these stories all the time from a very white lens and like, don't cancel me. I think white people make amazing television and movies and I have learned to love and learn from them. 
But there was really something really powerful about seeing a Korean American lead and being like, this is a different kind of American family. It's also an ordinary American family. And I think that that resonated for a lot of people. Do you hear that a lot when you talk to people about it? Yeah. And I mean, I think I'm so honored by that. You know, I think I really went into writing the story, wanting to write a story about an American girl next door and how that can look a lot of different ways. But we've pretty much seen just the one kind of way for so long. I wanted to tell a story that the whole point wasn't about her being Asian. You know, like nobody's whole point is their race. Like, what? Me, it's like, Breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably like, it's not what? the most, it's certainly, it's not the most interesting thing about me. But before, I think that most times when we would see a book um, with a main character who wasn't white, the whole point was their sort of s- struggle with their race. And I think that we didn't get to see the story where it's a part of the identity, but it's not the whole like reason for the book, you know, and something I've had heard many times over the years was like, well, why do they need to be Asian? It's like, they don't need to be anything. It just is what it is, what it is. It's, that's what they are. And you don't have to like explain. Okay. It's called description. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I think people of color have had to explain their existence um, to prove their, their um, right to be there, you know? And I was hoping with this book that there didn't need to be any kind of um, proof of life, I guess Um, that she could just be what she was, you know? And um, I don't know. I, I, I hope that especially for my young readers that they could read that and feel also represented by that experience um because i think we need those those sort of like big um epic stories about race yes great like but also can we also have just hey here's a rom-com it doesn't always have to be about pain and suffering right. and right like sometimes people are just asian like it's fine. yeah <laughs> <laughs> like That's every time your memoir sometimes people are asian the jenny han story like yeah exactly like not every time does it have to be about internment camp or being bullied at school or whatever, you know, like, it's like, I like those too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like saying I don't, I just think, I think that to me, the goal is to have that kind of breadth of experience, just a bigger palette to pick from. I love hearing you talk about that because, you know, clearly in the worlds that we work in and like, media and in publishing and you know like for you for film and tv there's always this pressure from gatekeepers to also explain that you know it's like they're always the stand-in for the audience it's like well why would the audience want uh this or why isn't this black person talking about slavery or why isn't this asian character um talking about their own like pain and I find that that is really holds us back from a lot of things. So I just like appreciate you, you know, like saying that you want to, you just want to like create the work that you want to create. And it doesn't have to be imbued by this like fake sense of identity politics that gatekeepers want it to have. And I think it's, it's not with bad intentions, but it's also like, can you just step back a second and unpack what you're saying to me? Because a note that I've received before is like, oh, can you make this character like more Asian? Like, can you give them, like, can you deal more <laughs> with their, like, mean? can you make 
make it more about their Asian experience. You know, I've seen critics say that kind of thing too, where they're like, well, I feel like there could be more about her being Asian. And I'm just wondering, like, I, I think I get it, but I'm also like, if it's a white character, are you asking for more about their whiteness and like how they like, how they, what their identity is as a white person or are they just getting to be a character? Yeah, I mean, that kind of note is so telling because it's it says so much about, you know, like the person who is giving the note, but it also says so much about like what we consider to be racialized experiences or not. Because when I got a similar-ish note about something else, I remember just feeling really defeated, not just because of the work that I was doing, but just this truth of like, what does it like am I not black enough am I not that you know like what like what do you what is the monolith here you know like what is the thing that you are doing and I think that part of what is like so painful about having these conversations is the way that it always it makes you like doubt yourself you know and it makes you it makes you really like second guess a lot of choices that you do because there is so much pressure obviously to you know like for representation and good representation but I'm really at the point where I'm like, I'm ready to see like mediocre people of color win everywhere. That's (laughs) that's where I'm going to feel that there is representation. But also, as you said, everything is not about racial pain. You know, I'm like, people want to talk about love and people want to talk about their grief and their money and their whatever. And all of those experiences are not like racialized experiences. Um, Yeah. And I'm, I'm really starting to struggle with that word, even representation and what that means, because I think sometimes there's this feeling that if you're a storyteller that you should be that your first directive or your goal should be representation in in the story that you're telling. And I think from the creative perspective, you're trying to tell a good story and you're trying to write characters that feel really real and genuine. And first and foremost on my mind is not how am I, representing everybody with this because it's impossible you can't represent everybody in your group you're going to fail no matter what you do so it's like can you just tell a good story that people connect to like that's that is my goal and it's not the goal isn't for me to be like i'm going to make all asians proud with this thing because <laughs> if that was the goal i would just be failing all the time because you're not going to make everybody happy yeah i mean but can i make myself proud i'm like I'm yeah um <laughs> You know, exactly. Or, yeah. Or, or tell the story that you want to tell. It's also just not a pressure that like white creatives have. So again, I was like, again, a handicap. You know what I mean? I was like, here you go. Like everyone just wants to tell the story they want to tell, and things do not have to be this fraught. I know that you can't give me like any spoilers or anything like exclusive about the third movie, but what can we look forward to? I think that you can look forward to really seeing. Laura Jean coming into her own. I think in the first movie, she has a lot of fears about being in the world and of not feeling really like safe and protected and cozy. And I think the third film really sees her like literally kind of stepping out into the world. Like we're in Korea, we're in New York. We are not just in her, her house in her, her sort of smaller everyday existence and I think it enables her to grow and have to like stretch herself I'm like shook by the fact that um she's going to Korea because when I think of Lara Jean she is the most like indoor cat kind of person you know in the little women universe of books she is a Beth she is not a Joe exactly um 
you know, I'm just like justice for the Beths everywhere. Beth representation is important. <laughs> um, like, but that has always like really struck me. I was like, oh, wow. Like, a, you know, like a quiet girl who just wants to stay home. This girl is not looking for adventure. And I really not at all. Not at all looking for adventure. It's her being kind of forced to step out of those safe zones and then being like, oh, I kind of like it, you know, and I think she didn't want to. But now it's like it's a family vacation. It's a senior class trip. It's just um, these different opportunities that come her way and she just takes them, uh, which I, I think is brave. And actually, the book really started out as Beth representation because I thought, you know, about that family and how nobody ever says, I want to be a Beth or I'm a Beth. People are like, I'm a Joe. Even I'm an Amy. Not but, me. I'm a Beth. Who is an Amy? What? Oh, me. <laughs> what do you think you're an Amy? I'm well, definitely an Amy. I mean, it makes sense. But you would never betray like Amy betrays is how I feel. But that's how no. you know Beth is that I cannot stand Amy shenanigans. No, but like I can recognize some Amy qualities in myself. But I'm also I've got some Joe in me as well. Uh, but nobody, I mean, except for you now, I never hear people say I'm a Beth. And I thought like, what is her sort of inner world? Like what is interesting about this person who is mostly in her head and at home? And that's kind of like Lara Jean's origin story in a way. Uh, I love that so much. When you were obviously like writing these books, uh, you like probably did not imagine that they would be global Netflix like phenomena some someday. What has that experience been like of just like, oh, it's like a thing that like so many writers aspire to. It's a thing that so many writers aspire to. But for you, it like became a reality. And I'm sure it's both fun and then like a little bewildering. I think I mean, I'll say that, you know, we made the movie first and then sold it to Netflix after. And I remember at first being like, Oh, you know, we, I'd want it to be having a wide release in the movie theaters and to have that whole experience. And then when we sold it to Netflix, you know, there really wasn't a kind of like template for that experience as an author. Um, I think kissing booth had been a book originally, but people really found kissing booth through the movie. I think um, it was, was when it had its really big success, yeah. but there hadn't been, I, I can't even remember which other, movies they did that were books. In fact, they hadn't at that point done a ton of movies. It was more of like TV shows, right? So they had 13 Reasons Why, I believe, and um, Orange is the New Black. But this was like, I guess, in 2017, so just a few years ago. But things have changed so much since then in terms of how many movies they make. I think they're going to make like 71 movies this year, which is a lot of movies. And so I don't think any of us knew what to expect out of the experience. And then it ended up just being like, an explosion and it's kind of the only way and the only way that could happen was they are in millions and millions of people's homes yeah. you know like it's like millions of people saw that movie the first month because netflix is like a global sensation and i feel like this is gonna sound so corny but like my experience with netflix has been really wonderful and the people that i've worked with have been genuinely great and they've been like I don't know, maybe they're good actors, but like I have had a feeling this whole time that they are really like honored to tell this story and they, and they love it. And they truly love like Lara Jean even. And again, maybe they're all lying to me. 
I, I don't think they're lying to you. I think when you work with people that are good to you and you have a good working relationship, I think that you like know that, you know what I mean? And it is hard. It's hard to have like good working relationships across like ginormous organizations, you know, and, or across just like a project that's this big because there's so many hands in it. So I, I feel that if you feel good about it, it's probably because it is good. Not because you were like, it is. And I don't, I don't take it for granted for like one second. I don't take any of it for granted, you know, for the way that Netflix has handled the movies, the way that, um, you know, the fans have responded to it and been like so open hearted and like loving about it that I will always be grateful for. Okay. Let's rewind like, uh, you know, baby Jenny Han in college thinks she wants to be a writer, you know, and you're like grinding away. First of all, what was your first job? Like ever job you had real job? Yeah. Olive garden. Olive garden. What did you do? <laughs> I was a server. I was probably the worst server in Olive garden history. Like I was an amazing server if I had two tables. That was like <laughs> <laughs> the best oh, service yeah. of your life. Then you give me three tables and oh no, no, I don't. I, don't I didn't know. know this about you, but like it is my longest held belief that anyone who works in um, food service has like incredible work ethic and is an amazing person. So Oh, wow. Well, well, but I don't know because I, like I said, I was not a good server um, if I was given more than it wasn't your talent. It wasn't your talent. So I'm glad you found your talent. What has like changed the most about your like work since then or what you thought that you were capable of doing in your work? Since I was baby? Since like your baby writer days when you were like, maybe I'm going to be someone who like writes these novels. Oh, gosh, you know, it's almost like when I made that decision to move to New York in a very Felicity fashion, I almost just kept going I mean that was the biggest hump for me was like I'm gonna go to New York I'm gonna get my MFA I'm gonna take out $35,000 in loans and I'm just gonna bet on myself I think that was you know I was 22 and making that decision sort of just changed my whole trajectory and I don't know I can get scared about next steps like I think I, I was scared last night as, as I was like thinking about all the things I have to do and for the first time there's so many things I'm learning now as I'm doing screenwriting and it's scary because I think as you get older, in some ways it's harder to fail because it's not a nice feeling to fail, you know, and it's hard to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. But in a way that's what is interesting. I think with, after to all the boys um, came out the third book um, and then the movie, I guess I just had a feeling of like, I know exactly what my life will look like if I write another book right now. But I was ready to just shake things up a little bit and try something different and maybe fail at something, you know, just to keep things interesting. Where do you think that sense of like self-assuredness comes from? Like, is it something in your childhood? Is it a way that your parents raised you? Or do you think you just like figured it out? I think it's that immigrant style, honestly, you know, I mean, my dad, if he came here with 40 bucks, not speaking English, no education, they amaze me when I see my parents just doing like, I don't, we don't give enough credit to all those people who move somewhere else and they just completely start over and they don't know how to do anything. And then they kind of don't know how to do things in a way for their whole life. You know what I mean? Like even now, like I'm helping my parents with financial stuff, like their paperwork or this or that. And kind of always 
I think as an immigrant where the language is not your language, you're always in some ways like humbled because it's just like not your culture and you're having to ask for help all the time, but then you just keep going. And I think that might be the thing that I've learned is I guess being afraid, but then not letting that hold you back from just trying Oof, thank you for preaching to me because I need to hear that today. Um, but I think you're right. It's like the fear is always going to be there, right? So it's like if the fear is the thing that paralyzes you, then I guess you're never going to do anything. And it can. I mean, again, like last night, I was just kind of listing in my head all the things that I'm worried about. And by the way, that's something that I've done since I was really little. Like I couldn't fall asleep unless I worried about like three things and then I could fall asleep. Aww. Just imagine like a little girl with like a little furrow in her brow with her sheets up to her chin like (laughs) (laughs) trembling with worry um and i don't know i think it's maybe somewhat self-soothing to just kind of list it out name the things that you're scared about um and then just keep pressing on because like we don't really have a choice like i'm already in it oh my god okay before i let you go what is your hope for the rest of the pandemic for for yourself and for the rest of the world my hope for the rest of the pandemic is gosh, that people can find some relief. I'm hoping that, you know, the stimulus checks will go out, that the vaccine rollout will keep happening, um, that people can just have hope, I guess. Like it's been so interminably long and I really just want to like head into the roaring twenties and like put on some heels and some red lipstick and dance and like drink champagne. Like that's what I want to do. And I'm hoping that we can just keep going until we can get there. It seems like there's ups and downs with all of this. Sometimes it feels really easy. And in some days it's like, it can feel really bleak. So I guess it's just enough to keep people going, um, keep the restaurants going, keep um, people's jobs going for as long as, as it takes. Uh, as long as it takes. Um, I hope that we are not in the house for much longer, but if we have to be, I really hope that everyone is well taken care of. And I hope that you and I can go back to our golfing lessons. That's my hope for the rest of the pandemic. <laughs> You're so much better than me that I don't know. Like, I'm like, should I quit? Like, I'm not. You can't quit golf. First of all, I'm not better than you. I've had to fend it for myself because our instructor likes you more. Um, he so, does It's because, so listen, he spends more time. Happening. No, he spends more time with me because I'm worse. And then he looks over at you and he's like, good, good, good. So, Joe, Kamala, if you're listening to this, please. fix <laughs> <laughs> the pandemic so we can go back. Please. Um, I love you very much, Jenny Han. I am proud of you. Um, the third to all the boys movie is out on February 12th on Netflix. And um, it's going to be really fun. And I can't wait to watch it. Yay. Uh, a true icon of our time, Jenny Han. I know. I keep telling her that she's the Asian Shonda Rhimes. I was like, you know, all <laughs> it's like all you're doing is like dropping TV show after TV show and movie after movie. And I am here for the reign of Jenny. I'm very, 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 very excited to watch the last um, installment of To All the Boys. It'll be sad to say goodbye to it. But also, um, you know, like love when Netflix brings the family together. It's also there for forever rewatching. Like, that's the thing. It's like, it's not ever really concluded, you know? 
true story. Um, I certainly will be watching it many, many times. Um, Anne, uh, I will see you on the internet, I guess. (laughs) See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.